0: We are today in part 10 of our question and answer series. My expectation uh, is that we're going to go about two more weeks with this. Uh, We'll get to part 12. Uh, I think that's where we will park this. Uh, But today we're going to be in part 10. We're answering questions about the end times. Uh, questions about the end. Uh, we've had a number of questions that came in, quite a few of them actually from our teenagers, uh, related to the end times. So as always uh, throughout this series, uh, all these questions have been submitted by people from the church, by the way. These are not manufacturing questions. We did not uh, produce these ourselves. These are questions that you guys have submitted Um And you can submit further questions today if you have them. You can text 662-404-2489. That church number will be on the screen throughout our time together this morning. Uh, If you've got a question related to the end times especially, I'd encourage you to text that in. Uh, We'll have one bonus question at the end of our service. So at the end of our service, we'll do our drawing, uh, have three prizes for uh, some different dads, uh, and we'll do our final question as well. Um, today, we have our questions broken into four questions. It's actually eight questions, uh, but but uh, there's a number of them that we can group together, and so you'll kind of see how we went A, B, and C uh, on, I think, question two and question four. So we'll start with question one, and that is this. Uh, excuse me. First of all, let me give you some principles. So as when the Bible speaks clearly, we're going to speak clearly. There's uh, definitely some scripture we'll get to dig into today on the end times. Secondly, when the Bible gives us a biblical principle, we'll seek to apply that principle. And then lastly, when the Bible is silent, or, or in this case, I would say unclear, I will give my opinion. I'm going to give a lot of opinion today. Uh, the end times, they're, they're, if you're not familiar, there's some controversy on some of this stuff. There, there, there are good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who see things differently when it comes to the end times. And so I'm going to tell you what the truth is uh, and what you should believe and why all those other people are wrong today. Just kidding. Uh, I am, I'll just tell you, I hold my, the, the, the theological term for this is eschatology. Uh, I hold my eschatology very loosely. Uh, because if you're familiar with the biblical text, the genre that most of end times literature is written in is what we call uh, uh, apocryphal um, or apocalyptic. And so apocalyptic literature in scripture is full of symbolism. Uh, It's not literal. And because it's full of symbolism, uh, essentially God is describing things that people 2,000 years ago could never understand. Uh, Imagine if, let's just say this is the last generation. Let's say the events of the end times are going to happen in our lifetime, and there are things like missiles and atomic bombs and jets and and all those things involved. 2,000 years ago, there's no way they could have even begun to comprehend what that stuff is. And so, of course, God had to teach them In symbols. Uh, If the end is somewhere off in the future, then perhaps we wouldn't even be able to comprehend the things that are involved, the technology that's involved in the end times. And so God used symbols to teach here are the types of things that are going to happen. And so since it's symbolic, is very open to interpretation. Uh, And I'm going to do my best to tell you what I think these things talk about and what they symbolize and my best understanding of the end times. Uh, But before we get into anything, I want to just lay lay a little bit of groundwork. Um, Here's what's really important when it comes to the end times. Number one, Jesus wins. Okay? Uh, This stuff can be scary. This stuff can cause fear. This stuff can cause apprehension and anxiety. And that's not why God gave it to us. Time and again, when God talks about the end, he's doing it to encourage us. Yes, things are going to get difficult, but hang on. Hold on. Jesus is going to win. So Jesus wins, number one. Number two, if Jesus wins, those who are with Jesus win. So the implication is, let's be with Jesus. Uh, let's, let's choose the right side. Let's be with him when this stuff goes down. And, and those principles will guide us uh, very strongly. Thirdly, I would say this. It's not a surprise to him. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to start, and that causes some fear for us. We don't know if we're going to be here. We'll get to that part, too. Uh, Man, what's it going to be like to suffer through this? What's it going to be like to experience this? There's some real apprehension that comes with that. But let me encourage you with this. Whether it's end times or whether it's any other struggle or difficulty of life, God is not caught off guard. In the midst of your storm, in the midst of your life falling apart, in the midst of the worst season, you can fathom God has not been caught off guard. He knew you were coming into this, and he knew how he was going to bring you out of it. And so that, I believe, is is a massive guiding principle for us when we talk about this stuff. So all that foundation out of the way, let's dig into some questions. Question number one is this. Um, Is it possible that the Antichrist is on the earth today? If so, who or what do you think it is? Is it possible that the Antichrist is on the earth today? So let's talk a little bit about the Antichrist before we answer this question. First of all, the the word Antichrist, most of us associate with events in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation never actually uses the term or the title Antichrist. The the book of Revelation talks about a couple different beasts, the beast that comes out of the sea, the beast that comes out of the land, um, and one of those is commonly interpreted as the Antichrist. But we actually get this term from the writings of John. Uh, who did write Revelation, but didn't use it in Revelation. So in his letter, uh, 1 John, he uses it here. He says this. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So John gives us uh, a couple things here that we can grab a hold of. Number one, there is and Antichrist. There is one ultimately who will come. So I believe that, yes, there, there is an Antichrist. I believe that's why we apply it in the book of Revelation. Um, secondly, he says that there are many Antichrists. So not only is there an individual who will fill this role and fill this title, but there's a whole bunch of people who are anti-Jesus. Uh, the, the, there's another place where it talks about the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, and ultimately, I believe that's Satan himself, that he is the spirit of Antichrist. The, Uh, Revelation teaches us that that Satan will actually possess the beast. Uh, And as he executes his persecution on the church, it'll actually be Satan possessing this individual. So, yes, uh, there is an Antichrist. I don't think it's a what. I think it is a who. who. Uh, So the question is, is it possible that they're here on earth right now? Uh, And I would say, absolutely, it's possible. When we look at... Biblical prophecy, what has to happen before Jesus can return, most of it has taken place. Uh, There are a couple of things that still have to happen before Jesus could come back. And uh, just for the timeline's sake, the Antichrist, I believe, and what I think the Bible teaches, the Antichrist will have rule over the earth, or at least most of the earth, for seven years. They will be a one world global leader for seven years uh, before Jesus returns and Jesus will ultimately defeat the Antichrist, overthrow the Antichrist, and and begin the 1,000-year reign here on earth at the end of that. And so if we know it's close to Jesus being able to return, then it's close to the Antichrist being able to take authority. Um, Nobody knows the hour and nobody knows the day. So just because most of the events have been fulfilled doesn't mean as soon as the last one's done, then, hey, it immediately happens. Uh, It just means it becomes possible uh, for those events to transpire. Here's a couple things that still have to happen. Number one, uh, the whole world has to have heard about Jesus. And when we say the whole world, most Bible scholars, myself, interpret that as every tribe, every language uh, has to have heard the gospel before Jesus can return. We're not there yet, but we're getting close. Uh, That's probably going to happen sometime in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, Certainly could happen much sooner than that through supernatural means, through technological advances. Um, It's very possible that that box could be checked very, very soon. Uh, The other thing that has to happen, the big thing that has to happen is the temple in Jerusalem has to be rebuilt. Uh, And that is a geopolitical nightmare. Uh, lots, of, lots of issues in Jerusalem between the Jewish population, the Christian population, the Muslim population, a lot of different agendas. That one hasn't been done, um, but certainly possible for someone to step in probably the Antichrist, who unites and brings unity and peace to, the, to that region, and when that unity and peace comes, um, it's not going to take long to put the temple back together. There, there are Jews who have already gathered all of the materials, all of the stuff, like they have the plans. They are ready to put this thing together as soon as it's legal for them to, to reassemble the temple, so it would not be a long process once the authorization comes down. It just hasn't been authorized yet, Um, So those things have to happen before uh, we see the Antichrist fully in power or perhaps as he begins to be fully in power. Do I believe he could be on earth? Yes, I believe he absolutely could. Who do I think it is? Uh, I will just take the, the tap out on this one, I have learned not to speculate. Uh, in my lifetime, Saddam Hussein has been the Antichrist. When I was in Bible college, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Antichrist. That's a true story. Uh, obviously, there were many who thought President Barack Obama was the Antichrist. Uh, some who thought Donald Trump was the Antichrist. Go back a little further in history, many thought Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. And if there was ever a good candidate for the Antichrist, uh, like he probably fit the role, right? Uh, Like I'm sure there were a lot of people who whiffed hard on that one because he checked a lot of boxes. Uh, Who is the Antichrist? Here's the thing. Nobody knows uh, other than God. Uh, When I say that, even Satan doesn't know. Here's my favorite theory on the Antichrist. I don't remember who first told me this. I think it was one of my professors in Bible college. but somewhere along the lines i heard this and it makes a lot of sense they said that they their belief is that satan has somebody prepared in every generation cuz he doesn't know the time he doesn't know when that hour will come so in every generation he's preparing somebody there were christians long ago who thought it was nero nero checked a lot of boxes absolutely wicked, absolutely evil, absolutely horrific things that he accomplished. Um, again, we, we've, we've seen Hitler. Like, There's a lot of people we can look down through history who said, man, that person would have made a great antichrist. And I think it was the enemy who, who was, had them in position, had them ready to go, but God says, no, nope, it's not the time. It's not the time. It's not the time. So, so in any generation, I think there's somebody prepared and equipped or perhaps multiple somebodies. John says, hey, many antichrists have come into the world. Who that person is, I'm not going to guess or speculate. I certainly think there is a great possibility uh, that the Antichrist could come through religious means rather than political means. In fact, I think that's probably the more likely route. A lot of times people think it's going to be a politician. I think it's probably going to be somebody who uh, comes up through one of the monotheistic religions and unites different factions that have never been united before. Somebody who's going to unite Catholicism and Islam or who's going to unite this church and Judaism or the, the, there's going to be somebody who, who seems to have this incredible gift for peace and reconciliation uh, and that's who people are going to choose to follow. That's my theory. That's just my theory. Um, I, again, hold my eschatology extremely loosely uh, I don't think we have to know who the person is or God would have told us. Uh, The reality is when that time comes, we'll know. Uh, I believe the Spirit will make it very clear. We'll we'll be very, very understanding once that person comes in to that position. So I don't know who that person may be. I think it's certainly possible that they're on earth right now. It's also very possible that they are not. Uh, That's my best answer on Antichrist. Question two, three parts. What do you know about the four angels under the river of Euphrates? Four angels under the Euphrates River. And I'm going to give you the other parts uh, of this question before we get into it. Uh, The next question is, why are there four angels under the Euphrates River? This was submitted by two different students. Uh, So I'm guessing they may have had a conversation. But uh, somehow some people are talking about the Euphrates River. And the third one is this. Is the Euphrates River... uh, the same one in the Bible. So the the, Mercedes, the Euphrates River today, is it the same one referred to in the Bible? I think that is absolutely true. I don't think this is like a, a symbolic river. Uh, I, I think, yes, it, we are talking about the same river. If you're not familiar with the Euphrates River, it, it runs through the Middle East. Uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates are, are the two primary rivers that that form what we call the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia. The Garden of Eden was in between these two rivers. It's very, very prominent in world history as well as Uh, scriptural history. So, let's go look at these four angels. Uh, We find them in Revelation chapter 9. It says this, it says, the sixth angel, in verse 13, sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So, Sometime in the future, God will issue a command to release these four angels who are bound up at the river Euphrates. Verse 15 says this, And the four angels who have been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Verse 17, The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplate was fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three great plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind, verse 20, who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their theft. Uh, So these four angels who are bound up will be released at some point in the future to bring destruction. Uh, We're gonna talk in a minute about the tribulation, uh, but let's talk for, for just a second about Things that happen. Uh, we see a lot of destruction in Revelation. We see a lot of horror. We see a lot of awful things. We see a lot of death, a lot of pestilence, a lot of plague, a, a lot of things that nobody wants to be here for. Uh, and those three things come from, or those things come from three different sources. There's three different things that simultaneously take place during these last days. Uh, one of them is the enemy unleashes his full wrath on the church. There's a massive persecution of the church. We'll talk about that a little bit more, uh, but, but that's one piece of it. Uh, another piece is the earth, which has been groaning for rest, restoration from the fall. Uh, we, we see the climax of this groaning. We, we see natural disasters and destruction unlike ever before. The third piece is we see God begin to pour out his wrath on sin. And so there's three different sources of mass destruction that all crescendo together. And as these three sources of destruction crescendo together, there's a whole lot of bad stuff that goes on. There's a whole lot of stuff that that we don't look forward to. So where do these four angels fit into the mix? Who are they? Why are they chosen for such a purpose as this? Uh, I'm going to give you my theory. This is not 100% 100% uh, known fact by any means. This makes the most sense to me, putting different scriptures together. We're going to go from the last book of the Bible all the way back to the first. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 6. We've already talked a little bit about Genesis 6 in this series, and we talked about Noah and his ark. That comes later in Genesis 6. Well, this is how Genesis 6 starts. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children with them. Now this is a hotly debated piece of scripture as well. Who are the Nephilim? What is going on here? Who are the sons of God? Um, my best interpretation, and what I think with a decent degree of confidence, like I'll say maybe 75%, uh, is that the the sons of God were, were angels. Uh, who came down and married women, reproduced with women. Uh, and God was very angry at this. This was something that he had forbidden. Uh, angels were not supposed to, uh, to give in marriage. In fact, when Jesus talks about heaven, when they ask Jesus about heaven, they're like, hey, uh, are we going to be married in heaven? And who are we going to be married to? Jesus says, no, in heaven you will be like the angels neither being married nor giving in marriage. And so God has designed for angels not to participate in marriage, not to participate in reproduction. Doesn't mean that they aren't capable. We see on earth many things that we weren't designed for that we are walking out. Uh, So just because God doesn't design someone for something doesn't mean they don't do it. Uh, And so I believe that these were were angels who were large physical beings uh, who came down and Mated with women uh, and produced children, and those children were called the Nephilim, uh, which in many translations, it's not even translated Nephilim, it's just translated as giants. Uh, And so there was this giant race, this race that God didn't design, this race that that was contrary to His purpose. uh, And perhaps part of why the flood comes a few verses later uh, is because God had to end that. Uh, So, my thinking is it was four angels who participated in this, four sons of God, uh, and that their punishment is they have been bound up ever since. They've been imprisoned for thousands of years somewhere near the Euphrates River in the Middle East, uh, and when they get out, they're going to be hot. When they get out, they're going to be angry, uh, and they're going to execute their vengeance on mankind. Uh, because they're going to basically feel like women seduced them, and it was not their fault uh, that they ended up in their fate, and so they're going to go off. And God's going to allow this. He's going to allow them to execute that vengeance on those who have walked in rebellion, who haven't repented. He just talks about all these things that they didn't repent from in Revelation. Uh, And so that's my theory. I could absolutely be wrong, uh, but I think that is who the four angels bound up at the river Euphrates are. Um, Ultimately, those angels, by the way, in in Revelation, we see that word angel used in reference to demonic beings more than once. Uh, And so we know that demons ultimately are fallen angels, that that's who, what their original design and creation was. And so in Revelation, it, it calls them by their original title of angels. But just because it says angel doesn't mean this is somebody who is sitting around the throne worshiping Jesus. Uh, this is someone who was created by God as a spirit being that was not supposed to uh, participate in reproduction. So uh, that's my theory on the Euphrates River. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Question number three, do you think that giants lived on the earth and do they still live on the earth? So uh, easy answer there. We won't spend a ton of time on this one, just transitioning out of that. Did they live on the earth? Absolutely. Were the Nephilim uh, a race of giants? I believe so. Uh, I believe that that race of giants was wiped out in the flood, uh, that they were sort of superhuman, uh, had, had Properties that, that would be hard for us to comprehend and understand because they were half angelic and half human uh, and was not never God's plan or design. So he ended that, destroyed them. They, they did not continue to reproduce after the flood. None of them made it on the ark. Uh, so then we have other giants, right? We, we know when the Israelites came to scout out Canaan and they, the, the promised land, they said, wow, there's giants in the land. They're so big, they make us look like grasshoppers. These were just big people. Uh, Goliath, obviously, this this mountain of a man who David slays. Uh, Massive, massive dude. Incredibly large individual. Large not just for his day and age, but even for his tribe, for the Philistines. Like He stood out above everybody else. Uh, We see this in modern times. There is what we call gigantism, uh, which is a problem with the pituitary gland. You have an overactive, hyperactive pituitary gland that doesn't shut off when it's supposed to, and people can just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And so that's a, a different thing than the nephilim, um, but we have seen that take place. In fact, there's a really interesting story I stumbled across not long ago. Uh, there was a guy born right around the turn of the century, I think he was actually born in 1899 named Adam Rayner. Uh, and Adam Rayner was born a dwarf. Uh, At 18 years old, he measured four feet and one quarter inch tall. He was uh, Hungarian. And uh, in fact, he was denied the ability to serve his army in World War I because he was too short. Uh, I said, no, we we don't need you. We don't want you. Uh, Not interested. Well, somewhere in his early 20s, uh, there was a tumor on his pituitary gland uh, that threw everything off. And homie started growing, Uh, and he kept on growing. In fact, he grew a little bit over three inches per year for over a decade, shot up from four feet tall to by the time he was seven foot one, a doctor found the tumor and removed the tumor, Uh, but the the gland, the hormone was still pulsing through his body to where he ultimately tapped out at seven foot eight. Uh, And so Adam Rayner is the only person recorded in human history who was both a dwarf and a giant. it's a crazy world we live in, y'all. Uh, the, 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 there are some interesting situations and stories, and, and that's actually, you can fact check that. that That's true. Uh, that, that is not just some fable or myth or some fun story. Uh, why do I tell you that? I tell you that to say it is... Is it possible for there to have been giants in the Old Testament like the Old Testament describes? Absolutely. Apart from supernatural God's power to do anything he wants, like scientifically we've seen these things happen, and it's certainly possible that there was a a gene pool, there was a certain group of people that had operative pituitary glands, that it was a common genetic function, and that they just grew and grew and grew to the point that everybody else looked at them and felt like, hey, these are giants. So, uh, do they still live on the earth? I don't think there's a race or a tribe of giants, but there are individuals uh, who experience gigantism. Uh, and so, yes, there are still some giants on the earth. Question four uh, is another three-parter, and we will close uh, our message with these. What are your thoughts about the seven years of hell? Uh, 4B, do you believe we will stay throughout the seven years of or what? Uh, and then part C: uh, Will the angels really kill off one third with their breathing fire? And so I could have put that part C with the, the other angels of Euphrates part, but but I think it fits even better here. What are my thoughts about the seven years of hell? Well, this young person is talking about what we would call the tribulation. Is uh, not talking about literal hell. Is talking about hell on earth. Uh, what do I think about the tribulation? Uh, Tribulation comes from a Greek word, thalipses. Thalipses. Thalipses literally means a pressing, a pressing together, uh, pressure. It means, man, when there's a a pressure cooker, things are are pressed together. The metaphorical meaning, uh, if you use the Strong's Concordus, is oppression, affliction, tribulation, Distress. Uh, The New Testament uses this Greek word, thalipses, a number of times. uh, I think it's right around 20 times. Uh, and in the modern translations, like our current NIV, we only see that translated as the word tribulation one time. The old King James translates it as tribulation, uh, I think, almost every time. So let me show you the one example in the modern translations. Revelation 7.13 puts it this way. It says, Then one of the elders asked me, this is John, as he's getting a vision of heaven, a vision of eternity. He's just seen the elders in heaven who are gathered around the throne come and lay their crowns before, before Jesus, before the Lamb. This, this picture of my recognition, my title, my honor, my treasure is nothing in the presence of God. I'm yielding my crown. I'm laying down my crown at the feet of Jesus. And so then one of them who had just laid his crown at Jesus' feet asked John, he says, hey, these in white clothes, who are they and where did they come from? And I love John's answer. He says, sir. You know, like, I don't know. I'm I'm a guest here. I'm a tourist. I don't know what's going on up here. Uh, All of this is crazy to me. Uh, If you read the book of Revelation, there's a lot that, hey, I don't know. But it's like, hey, somebody does. Uh, And John says, you're the one. Uh, And so the elder answered. he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, verse 15 they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Listen to this. Need some encouragement as we talk about end times. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor will any scorching heat. Shout out to everybody who was at the music festival yesterday. (laughs) Verse 17. uh, For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That promise about every tear being wiped away, it pops up again in Revelation 21, but we see it here in Revelation 7. So there's people in heaven in the future around God's throne, dressed in a special white robe of honor, because they're the ones who suffered in the great tribulation. Uh, the tribulation is, is, again, sort of like antichrist. It's a word that we see pop up here, and then we apply it to other events that we think this is what it's describing. Um, and I think we do that accurately, by the way, uh, but I want to make sure that we leave room for, hey, we could be way, way off on this. Uh, what we believe is that the tribulation is the seven-year period of the reign of the Antichrist, that the first three and a half years of the tribulation uh, will be rough, but maybe not historically rough. Uh, there will be some tense of, of peace and unity and harmony uh, that this individual has brought in. Then at the halfway mark, three and a half years into the Antichrist reign, we're going to have what we call the abomination of desolation. Uh, the Antichrist is going to do something so awful, so horrific, so demonic, that the Jews immediately recognize this isn't him. At this point, they thought he was the Messiah. To this point, they're going to think the the Jews are going to respond. And when I say the Jews, I don't mean every single Jew on earth. I mean Jews who have not come to Jesus, uh, who who are not what we call Messianic Jews. So not the entire race, but the vast majority of Jews are, are going to recognize the Antichrist as the Messiah. This is it. He's the one we've been waiting for. Um, Halfway into his reign, he's going to do something where they say, whoa, we were wrong. He is absolutely not. It's going to be so clear, so black and white that he's not the Messiah, uh, that they're going to turn against him. And when that happens, now the great persecution of the church begins. It's going to be bad for the first three and a half years. It's going to be completely awful the last three and a half. Once the Antichrist is fully revealed that this... Is him, And so we call that the, the tribulation. The question of the tribulation that the church often wrestles with is, are we going to be here? So they asked me, hey, what do, you, what do you think about the seven years? They even asked in part B, are we going to be here? Um, the answer to that question is a very confident, I don't know. Uh, there, there are certainly scriptures that suggest we will not. There are certainly scriptures that suggest that we will My belief is this, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Um, If God sees fit to allow his people to be here during the tribulation, this is the God who poured out 10 plagues on Egypt and protected his people while the plagues were poured out. Okay? Uh, So some people will say, well, God didn't create his people for suffering, uh, so we're not going to be here. I I don't think that verse or that statement specifically is enough to say we won't be here because we've seen God pour out his wrath uh, and protect his people. Uh, He is absolutely capable of doing that. Are we we created for wrath? Absolutely not. I don't believe the, the portion of the tribulation that is God pouring out his wrath, I don't think that it's going to come on the church. Uh, I believe the church will be protected from that. Now, there are two other portions of the tribulation that whoever's here, they're going to suffer through. Why are there people honored in heaven for having suffered through the tribulation? Because it's not going to be fun. Because it's going to be a very difficult season for those who are here. So there's two different theories about who those people are. Theory one is, it's us. It's the church. It's whoever happens to exist when the tribulation starts that we would go through it. Theory two, the pre-trib rapture theory, is that the church that is here at the time will be raptured, will be rescued, will be taken up uh, out of the world when the tribulation begins, or some would say at the abomination that causes desolation, so either halfway through or at the beginning. That's called the mid-trib rapture uh, theory, um, so that we wouldn't be here for the worst of it. And so that those who are in those white robes in heaven are those who actually come to Jesus during the tribulation. Uh, That there are going to be a number of people, specifically but not exclusively Jews, after the abomination that causes desolation, that they realize, we missed the Messiah. He came, and we missed him. And they're going to give their heart to Jesus in droves. There's going to be this massive end times revival uh, of people who recognize that, hey, man, this is exactly what the Bible was talking about. This thing that we wrote off, this thing that we ignored, this thing that we mocked, this thing that that we rolled our eyes at, it was actually true the whole time. Uh, And those people are going to give their lives to Jesus in droves, and they're the ones who are going to have to suffer through the tribulation. Uh, I don't know. I know uh, the denomination that we're affiliated with, the Assemblies of God, they're very, very strong and firm in the pre-tribulation rapture uh, belief, and and I honor that, and I respect that. And if you're a pre-trib rapture person, I'm not here to talk you out of your beliefs. Uh, if you're a post-trip rapture person, I'm not really here to talk you out of your beliefs either. Uh, ultimately, I don't think it matters. I think our job is to worship Jesus. Our job is to honor Jesus. Our job is to hold fast to Jesus. We've seen massive persecutions of the church in the past that were not end times, um, I absolutely believe we could suffer through and experience a massive persecution that's not even the tribulation. Uh, I don't think God promises he's going to rescue us from every hard thing. In fact, I know he doesn't. He says in John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, he says, you will have trouble. That word trouble is the Greek word it's the same word translated as tribulation. It says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, not a certain generation of Christians that, that we're going to experience hard times. I think all of us in this room have known Jesus long enough. We could say, yeah, there have been some hard times. Yeah, there have been some difficulties. Yeah, there have been some things that I wish I didn't have to go through. And the reality is it could get worse. It could be more difficult. These things are here not to discourage us and not to scare us. Jesus says, I've told you these things, why? So that in me, you may have peace. Your peace can't be founded in circumstances. Your peace can't be founded in politics. Your peace can't be founded in government. Your peace can't be founded in red, white, and blue, the United States or the Constitution. And I know for some of us, that may mess up your theology a little bit, but none of those things are guaranteed to be here at the end. You know what's guaranteed to be here? The Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. And if we root our peace in our economy, if we root it in our checking account, if we root our peace in, in our prosperity, there is a great possibility that our peace will be removed. So where do we find our peace? We find our peace in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone. None of the rest of this is guaranteed. I hope and pray that we prosper for the rest of our lives. I hope and pray that that our country turns its heart to Jesus and begins to deal with some of the stuff that we're seeing that that shouldn't belong. I hope and pray that things get better and not worse. I've got three kids. I don't want things to get worse for them. And I believe it's possible, by the way. I believe that God answers the prayers of the saints. And I believe that if God's people would turn our hearts to him, there is great potential. But I can't promise you it'll never be tough. I can't promise you it'll never be difficult. I can't promise you you'll never experience trouble or tribulation. Whether that's the tribulation or not. Let's so go ahead and put those last three parts of that question up there for me. I want to make sure that I answered all three of them. Uh, I know the first question is, what do I make of the seven years of hell? Uh, the tribulation. The second question is, are we going to be here for the tribulation? And then the third part of it. Uh, had something to do. I'll just grab it off my notes. I never use my notes anymore thanks to the confidence monitor. The media team's so good. Um, Let me grab it right here. Okay. Uh, Will the angels really kill off one-third with their breathing fire? I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I, I know that that may not actually be breathing fire. The breathing fire may be symbolic of something. That could be a disease. That could be any number of things. It could be a weapon. Uh, it could be an, an atomic attack. Like, there, there's a lot of things that the breathing fire could be, but as far as one-third of the population dying off, I think that's, I think that's what's going to happen. I think that's the reality, um, that, that those who were here at that point in time, it's not going to be a fun place to be. It's going to be a lot of weeping, a lot of gnashing of teeth, which makes the comparison that the young person made to calling it the seven years of hell fairly accurate. Uh it's going to be seven years of hell on earth. Do I want to be here for it? No, I'm good. Uh, I'd prefer not to experience that. But if God sees fit for me to be here, then he's got a purpose for me while I'm here. If God sees fit to allow his church to experience that, then it's because we are called to be the light. We are called to be salt. We are called to minister to the hurting, to the devastated. We are called to share Jesus. And so it's up to God if we're going to be here or not, whether it's our generation or not. I don't know the answer to those questions. But I know this. In Jesus, we can have hope. We don't have to be afraid of these events. doesn't mean we look forward to them. doesn't mean we got to be like the masochistic church and be like, yes, bring it on, Satan. Uh, I think that's foolish. I'm, I'm not looking forward to that myself if we experience it. But we serve a God who is for us and who is with us. His promises. he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. So if he leaves his church here during the tribulation, and I'm not saying he will, but if he does, know this, he's here with us. He's suffering with us. He's going through it with us, and we're going to see the other side. And we will one day be dressed in white. We will be honored in heaven if we're the generation that walks through that and experiences that. And if not, we're going to honor another generation and celebrate them for holding fast to Jesus in the midst of the most difficult season. Would you pray with me?